Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Just a quick heads up, this podcast contains rude language and adult themes. The philosophy of sex. Unfortunately, I don't think Western philosophy is ever going to be the answer because it's it's just too problematic. It's, it's based on so many different colonial concepts, the gender binary, understandings of sexuality that are really misogynistic it occupies so much space and it needs to be shifted out of the way so people can talk and create their own ethical codes and frameworks and that's the goal of this episode of the philosophy of sex do you want me to go the long route or the short route let's go the long route okay (laughs) Hold on tight, this is a big episode. It's a big show, and I'm excited to take you with me as we explore some of the less talked about stuff concerning sex and sexuality. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond, and this is The Philosophy of Sex. We all have our own philosophy when it comes to sex and sexuality, and it's certainly a pretty polarizing topic. So I've asked people from many different walks of life to share their research, their musings, and their experiences. In this episode, we're going to look at how different environments affect our sexual behaviour, what that says about social conditioning, how Western philosophy has played a part in that, and what tools we might be able to use to interrogate this conditioning so we can get closer to our genuine sexual selves. Now, I'm all for solo fun, but instead of listening to just me for half an hour, I've invited some brilliant people along to share their research and their experiences. I was listening to my students talk about their experiences on campus, and I'm watching the pop culture conversation about this new thing called hookup culture. Lisa Wade is an associate professor at Tulane University in New Orleans, teaching sociology, gender, and sexuality studies. She's also the author of American Hookup, The New Culture of Sex on Campus. Why is there this kind of contradiction? Why is it that I always feel this feeling that I'm fighting something? Why do I need to fight for my right to a sexuality, for desire? And that's what's driven the professional and the philosophical questioning. It's that drive to understand. And I think we all have that, don't we? We want to understand. That's Victoria Brooks, a writer and researcher in sexual ethics, whose PhD research led her to a public sex beach in the south of France. We'll also be hearing from Raja Hawani, professor at School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Raja is a Kantian philosopher whose work often focuses on sex and sexuality. The concept of sex can be ambiguous, it can mean a lot of things. So if you just take the word sex itself, it can mean biological sex. It can also mean sexual behavior, how one sexually acts. And it can also mean sexual desires and motivations. Euphemia Russell also joins us to talk about somatic and embodiment practices. Euphemia is also a pleasure coach and author. I focus particularly on slow pleasure, gender identity, 
and supporting people who consider themselves as people pleasers and uh, defaulting to other people's needs and wants and how to center themselves in their bodies and their pleasure. Are you pretty good at saying sex is just sex or are you more emotionally invested? Have you ever felt pressure to be one over the other? One of the many forces that shape our individual relationships with sex is the environment we exist in, or more often, the environment we feel pressure to exist in. The topic of Lisa Wade's book, American Hookup, is the very specific and very detached casual sex that's become the norm on residential college campuses in the United States. Hookup is just a new word for casual sexual activity. It's the idea that casual sexual activity is what you should be doing. It's not just something you could do. It feels more like an obligation than an option. It's also a really clear script. You know, we, we often talk about casual sexual activity as spontaneous, but in this case, quite the opposite. Lisa looked further into what the script was and what expectations it was setting. Students largely think about relationship sex and hookup sex as being opposite things. Relationship sex is girlish, it's feminized, it's in the context of love and care and connection. Hookup sex is boyish, it's masculinized, it's not in the context of care and connection. Because we think of gender as a binary thing, because we think of men and women as opposite sexes, we just sort of apply this gendered logic to relationship sex and hookup sex. And if this is true, if hookup sex is everything that relationship sex is not, and vice versa, then it's wrong to care about your hookup partner. You're just doing it wrong to have positive feelings toward them. We're just doing this for sex. I don't actually like you. That's rough for a lot of students because it's one thing to have sex with someone that doesn't love you but it's an entirely other thing to have sex with someone who may not even like you at all. And not everybody's got the stomach for that. So if your answer before was that you invest a lot of emotion in your sexual relationships, or you look for more intimacy and therefore feel disappointed or drained after a hookup, this whole world might not be for you. You could opt out, but the expectation is pretty strong to keep going. You might be thinking, well, I'm not in college or at uni anymore, but these same scripts and binary thoughts of sex are likely still all around you. There's kind of a hookup script and a dating script that are sitting side by side. Um, I think it's actually quite confusing these days to date because the expectations and the sort of rules of interaction that the hookup script require are in many ways the exact opposite of the dating script. So for example, how quickly do you text back? You know, if it's the hookup script, maybe never, <laughs> but definitely not right away. If it's the dating script, you're trying to be polite and indicate to someone you like them. So the fact that those two scripts are out there simultaneously is very confusing. And it just goes to show that we're really not quite sure what we're doing. This is one of the many conundrums of casual sex. Casual sex can work really well for some, but it can be deceptively hard to nail, especially if you have to pretend to give less fucks about other people and less fucks about fucking. Some of them can stomach it better than others. A few of them think it's fantastic. It's the best thing that ever happened to them. 
about a third of students really want to be having sex, but just won't under these circumstances. They just opt out of hooking up and they don't know how to get sex any other way. And the majority, the plurality of students are really just sort of ambivalent about what they're experiencing. Men often find this frustrating, disappointing. Women sometimes find it infuriating, traumatic, but they both tend to be disappointed. Lisa describes this as a punishing emotional landscape where pleasure inequality is perpetuated by an inherited, gendered, binary mode of thinking. And so everybody thinks that really, you know, guys are getting what they want in hookup culture and girls aren't. But I think what's more the case is that men and women overwhelmingly want the same thing. But because of the way in which we gender hookup culture, because hookup culture occurs in a context of gender inequality, we find that it suits men somewhat better than it does women. And that's where we get the difference of men feeling frustrated and women getting mad. Unrealistic expectations make everyone uncertain. And in American Hookup, Lisa talks about how this makes students act in ways they don't like, hurting others unwillingly and consenting to sexual behaviour they may not want. Victoria Brooks based her PhD research, and later her book Fucking Law, on the need for new and better ways of questioning sexual behaviour. The project that formed the basis of my PhD and then later the book Fucking Law is based on a nudist beach in the south of France. And it's also a place where sort of open public sex happens, swinging, all kinds of different sex. Anything you can imagine happens. It's a place that I'd been to before, before I did my formal research. So it's a place that I went to as part of sexual explorations with, with a partner. There was something about the place that drew me back, even though the experience was difficult for me, because I found myself in lots of situations where I'm like, I should be enjoying this as somebody who, who enjoys sex, but I'm not. <laughs> but then I'm thinking, well, I want to understand this, and it's that drive to understand that brought me to look at this in more depth and to go back there with some of the tools that I'd learned philosophically and see if I can understand, see if that can help me understand. Now, public sex beaches and college campuses might seem a world apart, but they're really just environments or places where casual sex is an expectation with similar scripts at play. You heard Victoria say that she felt she should be enjoying herself, but she really wasn't. And so she decided that this was the perfect testing ground for determining whether Western philosophy was a useful tool for finding what she calls her own sexual ethics. Yeah, this is where it gets tricky. There's never been a framework written by women for women that relates to ethics. So women have always been what we call other to any ethical framework because the field has been so dominated historically by men and the white male canon. The problem with our kind of history, particularly how philosophy has developed, is that it's always been this kind of prized idea of objectivity, so taking a distance from something, which has resulted in this very abstract idea of morality. So it's just this idea that you should have this some kind of transcendental, disembodied understanding of right and wrong, and that then causes us to judge each other and ourselves in accordance with completely unrealistic ideas. 
because we're looking at this thing that's been written for us and what's right and wrong, and then I'm doing something different. So obviously I'm going to think, well, I'm wrong then. I'm as a person, my sexuality is wrong because I'm not doing the things, I'm not feeling the things that I've been told are right. But I think it's important that that framework is never fixed, that it can always move, because if there's one thing we know about sex is that it's totally unique every time. And that framework needs to change depending on the kind of sex and the type of people that are involved in that sex. These unrealistic ideas Victoria talks about come from a history of dualistic thinking, which is at the root of much of the Western philosophical canon. Separating the mind from the body and getting into this territory of binary and gendered distinctions of what's right and wrong is what Victoria kept running into. There was no way she could advocate for her own sexuality and desires without judgment. Conventional philosophy didn't help her. It actually added to her dilemma and made enjoying sex more difficult. The Philosophy of Sex is brought to you by Becoming. Becoming offers something quite different from your typical online sex store. We combat the frustration of trying to find a great sex toy by producing personalised recommendations. Kinda like a sex toy concierge or HelloFresh with dildos. We only stock the best of the best, so whether you're starting out or adding to your collection, take our quiz, tell us what gets you off, what you're curious about trying, and we'll deliver a personalised selection of toys to your door. Pleasure is for everyone, so visit becoming.me. Becoming spelt B-E-C-U-M-I-N-G. Back to the episode. I do want to say quickly that even though Kant's views might have been a product of his time, I think we also have to take them on their own on their own merits, so to speak, regardless of, of the products of his, of his time. Now philosophy uncovers a lot about certain views that he had about women, about certain races, and that goes with the territory, so to speak, in terms of historical figures. I've always liked his strictness when it comes to moral philosophy. I'm very attracted to this idea for some reason. Immanuel Kant was a very influential philosopher who based his theories on the mind-body dualism described by his predecessor, René Descartes. Raj is going to explain some of Kant's philosophies of sex. He thought that when it comes to sex, we actually desire people for their bodies, basically, for, for their flesh. They don't really care about the other person's um, talents or skills or anything like that. They just want to basically feast sexually on another person's body. And this is a problem because he thought that when we do this, when we feel sexual desire for someone else, this is a form of objectification. And to him, this was basically immoral no, no, basically, you just cannot go there. And that's why he infamously came up with his solution, which is that only in marriage can sex be tolerable. And of course, the problem there is that Kant's views of marriage are not what we consider, think of marriage. He basically thought of marriage as mutual ownership. So if I own my spouse and my spouse owns me, so then I can 
literally treat him as an object and not have to worry about it because I own him. And he owns me. So because he owns me, I also get myself back. So he had this weird intellectual gymnastic where he thought that marriage allows you to have your cake and eat it too, basically. But anyway, so that's the Kantian problem. So the difficulty with that question, and I, to my mind, I don't know of any philosopher who has yet unpacked it, and probably we need a lot more empirical evidence, and we need to build more bridges with psychologists and sexologists who have written on this, but who are also conversant with the Kantian philosophical tradition, because otherwise the conversation is not going to go very far. Even though, as a society, we often want to boil it down and like venture into binaries and binary language and binary thinking, it's not always so clear-cut. The tricky situation is that we've inherited a dualistic lexicon where we talk about the mind and the body as separate parts of a whole. This binary thinking also extends to gender and sexuality. Euphemia Russell offers tools for us to notice this inherited thinking and interrogate it for ourselves. Euphemia's work also allows us to notice how shame, stress, fears or worries disembody us. However, when we are embodied, we're more connected to our complete sense of self. The way that I coach in somatics is looking at what have we inherited, how do we gently interrogate that, and how do we allow space for our own thoughts and feelings and desires to emerge. And that's why I focus on slow pleasure, because it's more about creating choice around pace, but around everything else, because when you allow even a little bit of space to stop and check in with yourself, check in with your body, feel more embodied, be aware of your sensations, rather than just defaulting to what I've inherited or what I've been told or what I believe. So I do think it's possible to realize your desires outside your social conditioning or the influence of the structural forces in society or institutional or family or communities and all the ways that we can be shaped and it takes practice. So what Euphemia is saying is that if we don't pause and check in with ourselves, the things we're taught to believe will continue to shape us. For instance, the harmful aspects of hookup culture will continue to stay the same, and binary thinking will make any new questioning into sexuality pretty difficult. We're going through a big time of understanding the structures of oppression, the invisible forces that have shaped us, have shaped our desires, have shaped our sense of self, realizing that so many of them are social constructs, like gender, for example. Being like, holy shit, I just acted throughout my entire life in this way that I'm realizing I inherited. Does this align with me? And some people will be like, yeah, actually, it does feel really good. Now I've realized that it's something I've inherited, but actually suits. Whereas other people will be like, oh, wow, there's more choices and more options. And so I think there's huge scale things that we take for granted as being the norm or being the only choice and the only option. And so that's why I think it's really important to just gently interrogate those things. And then I think that there is this like Cartesian mind over matter. I think therefore I am thinking when it comes to sense of self that has really impacted our modern understanding of ourselves and body and pleasure. So Euphemia, Raja, Victoria and Lisa all share a common interest in the inherited thinking and social conditioning that affects our sexual behaviour. 
The first step towards a better understanding of what this means for you personally is making space to notice. It's a condition we call pluralistic ignorance. Um, and that's when the majority of a population misunderstands its own reality. Like almost all college students, about three quarters, would really be open to a monogamous romantic relationship if they had the opportunity to build one. And yet nobody thinks anybody wants that. We have pretty rigid notions of why things are the way they are, but they're not necessarily true. And there's a whole lot of context-specific stuff we often don't account for. I mean, because we have gendered histories, and our gendered histories have propelled us into gendered presence and gendered futures. So think about how men who have felt same-sex desire have had to express their sexuality over the many generations. They were essentially forced to marry women and have sex with women to make children. And if they wanted to express their same-sex feelings, they had to do so under the cloak of darkness, in secrecy. They had to do it in bathrooms and in parks where no one would find out or know. So there's a whole history of casual sexual activity between men that is rooted not in biology, but in oppression. As a society, we are constantly in the process of unravelling dated and conventional thinking. But the topic of sexuality makes slower progress because gender binaries are so ingrained in the picture. I mean, the orgasm gap is a measure of how much we value men versus women and in what contexts. And so until we value men and women equally in all contexts, we're not going to see that orgasm gap close. We also don't want to fixate on orgasm as the goal of all sexual activity. And if we don't have exactly the same number of orgasms all the time, then somehow this is a crisis, right? The the truth is that like, it just won't be about power anymore. So we'll see a natural distribution. I see nothing at all particularly troublesome about hookup culture, except for the fact that it occurs in a context that is sexist and racist and classist and ableist and, you know, you name it. The problem is that this particular way of being sexual gets spoiled by all of these other factors. Everyone says sex is complicated, and it definitely is, But if we can question why it's so complicated and where our philosophies of sex have come from, we could start to form new ones for ourselves. And when I say questioning, I mean without judgment, because you can easily go down that path and it's not the idea at all. One needs to be quite clear about why, because I think one of the reasons you shouldn't have sexual ethics if if you're going to have them and one of the reasons not to decide to have them is to be able to judge yourself because that's not the idea at all that's what we want to go away from rather I think it's about a framework for making sure that you feel safe a framework for you to be kind to yourself to give yourself the most pleasure a pleasure-centered ethic that says what do I need from this person from this situation and setting those boundaries, right? It's saying this, these are the things I'm prepared to do, these are the things that I need. So we've only scratched the surface of sex and Western philosophy in this episode, and already found more than a few conundrums. 
The series will take us into areas like taboo, tantra, BDSM, sex toy design, and the medicalization of sexuality, and look at how we think about those things from a philosophical perspective in our rapidly changing world. I talk about philosophy through an interrogation of philosophers. What I'm saying is that there is a power to be abused there, a power that is endorsed by society, and that's an obviously another power structure, intellectual power structures, which are really important in, in kind of forming the frameworks that we have and the social dynamics that we live in. Often we're not even aware of these frameworks. So the big question is, how can we begin to interrogate them? And what might that practice look like? When it comes to pleasure, when it comes to communication, the things that we were never really taught and we've all fumbled our way through, we need to build that muscle and that capacity and that practice through repetition and feeling more confident and at ease and centered in those small moments so that when it gets to the weightier moments, we can feel more centered and comfortable and confident and at ease to be able to check in with our body and not default and focus all externally on the other person or potentially leave ourselves and dissociate and how to find that way so there's a lot in there and we do need to practice. We all deserve to have the space to practice and to feel like we're encouraged in that. But it's difficult when we're led to believe that everyone else knows best. And I think we live in the age of information and experts and so people are like, oh, sex, what's the quick tip? Like, what are the five things I can do to spice up my sex life? And I'm like... Well, first of all, not interested in talking about that. Second of all, unfortunately, it's a slower, less sexy answer. Practice, practice, practice. And often people don't want to hear that, but... Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, the unsexy <laughs> reality of sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A big thank you for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And a big thank you to all of our guests. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me. There's also lots more info and links to further reading in the show notes. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcher, my co-producer and audio editor, who also wrote the music. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please leave us a review and subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.